Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. So if you're hunkered down at home right now, this may be a good time to check out our course platform, where you'll find programs from Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Russell Brand, Wim Hof, Brendan Burchard, Adrian Mishler, and many other brilliant personal development and wellness luminaries including my wife, Skylar Grant. I get in trouble if I don't mention Skylar. Our courses span yoga, meditation, spiritual development, functional medicine, recovery, and social impact. Essentially, everything you need to be holistically well. Just go to onecommune.com. If you are one of the superheroes on the front line, a healthcare worker, food provider, a scientist, a government worker, you will be stressed to your limits psychologically and physically, and even 30 seconds of deep breathing and grounding can help you stay centered and focused. We need you and we support you. So if you are someone on the front lines and can benefit from a meditation course on your phone in your pocket, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com and I will be happy to set you up with access. Thank you for your service. My guest on the show today is on a mission to transform the industrialized food culture into one that supports healthy people and a healthy planet. His name is Ocean Robbins. Ocean is the author of numerous books, including Choices for Our Future, A Generation Rising for Life on Earth, The Power of Partnership, the co-author of Voices of the Food Revolution, and most recently, the 31-Day Food Revolution. In 2012, Ocean founded the Food Revolution Network, which now has more than 500,000 members working for healthy, sustainable, humane, and delicious food. On today's show, we talk about the relationship between immunity and a healthy diet, regenerative agriculture, localization, actionable solutions to address factory farming and monoculture, and we hear about Ocean's unique family history and its relationship with food and how that shaped his life's work. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. My name is Ocean Robbins, and I am um, passionate about food about healthy, ethical, and sustainable food. I think that we all have tremendous power with our knives and forks to vote three times every day for the health we want and the world we want. I think that in these times when so many of us feel overwhelmed by forces beyond our control, it is more important than ever that we do the best we can with what we have. I want to help all of us to move from feeling like apathetic victims of what's going on in the world, to active participants, to leaders, to claim the power we have to make the best choices we can. And it turns out that every bite we take is a vote for the health mm. world we want. And I want to help make that vote a conscious one so that we can sustain greater health and vitality and wellness in our body and 
also participate in building a healthier world for future generations. Hmm. Beautifully said. Um, and I love your message of empowerment. I was talking to Paul Hawken, who um, is a you know, legendary environmentalist and penned a playbook for drawdown, um, uh, particularly um, targeted towards global warming. And, and he said, you know, that this is not something, our human condition is not something that's happening to us, you know, that we are active participants in it and that we can often be sort of paralyzed in the face of the enormity of the problems and we'll, you know, get into what the problems are in our food industry um, because they're substantial and I, I don't know anyone that knows anything more about that than you do. But as a means for background, um, you have a legacy in food. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you and your family and how you grew up and how you came to this point in your life. Sure, absolutely. So my grandpa founded an ice cream company, Baskin Robbins. My dad, John, grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool in the backyard and 31 flavors of ice cream in the freezer. He was groomed to one day join in running the family company. But when he was in his early 20s, he was offered that chance and he said no. And he walked away from a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to, as we jokingly say in our family, follow his own rocky road. <laughs> he ended up moving with my mom to a little island off the coast of Canada after walking away from the family fortune and and um, building a one-room log cabin where he and my mom grew most of their own food, practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day, and named their kid Ocean. That was <laughs> me, of course. They almost named me Kale, and this was before Kale was cool. So I have to say, for the sake of my social life, I'm grateful they took the more conservative route when they named their son. But we did eat a lot of kale and cabbage and carrots and onions and other veggies from the garden. And uh, as I got a little older, my dad ended up researching the food industry in which he had grown up and coming out with a series of best-selling books like Diet for a New America, which inspired millions of people to look at their food choices as a chance to make a difference in the world. As fate would have it, one of his readers ended up being my grandpa Irv, who read Diet for a New America around the age of 70. His doctor gave it to him and told him he should read it if he wanted to live because my grandpa had serious diabetes, heart issues, weight issues, other health problems. And my grandpa read it, he followed its advice, and he got tremendous results. He ended up giving up sugar, giving up most processed junk, giving up most animal products, and eating a lot more whole foods and fruits and vegetables. He reversed his diabetes, he reversed his heart disease, he lost 30 pounds he needed to lose, his golf game improved seven strokes. So we've really seen in our family that when we follow the standard American diet, we get the standard American diseases. We've also seen what can happen when we make a change. And in my own journey, inspired by my grandpa's legacy of leadership and making big things happen, and my dad's legacy of leadership in standing for integrity and showing what's possible with healthy food, I founded a nonprofit when I was 16 and worked with young leaders all over the planet in 65 countries, uh, mobilizing youth to become part of making the world a better place through activism and food issues, and then ended up deciding after 20 years running the nonprofit 
uh, to focus directly on food. Because as I traveled the globe, I saw that everybody eats and that what we're eating is having this enormous impact all over the planet and all over the world. The American way of processing food and um, marketing food and growing food with pesticides and GMOs and McDonald's and KFC and Baskin Robbins is spreading. And all over the world, wastelines are expanding, hospitals are filling up, and people are getting sick with chronic illness. And by the way, in the time of COVID-19, your health has become more important than ever before, because what we now see is that that um, heart disease and diabetes and obesity and other chronic illness are all significant risk factors for getting COVID-19 and for mortality, hospitalization, and other negative outcomes if you get it. So it becomes more important than ever to shore up your health, to reverse chronic illness um, now and for the long term. So I've been directing Food Revolution Network since 2012, and we've reached millions of people with our message. And we're just getting started because you know what? We still have a toxic food culture. And I believe that this is a place where we can make a real difference for our health and for our world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And first, be, before I, we get into the food industry, and I'm really interested in picking your brain a little bit about um, how the American food industry and global food industry works. Um, I will say I also have three bordering on teenage daughters. Um, and the fact that you started <laughs> this prolific nonprofit at age 16, I, I'm not exactly sure how that occurs, um, uh, but it is incredibly impressive what uh, you were able to do at a very, very young age. And um, I guess I would attribute that somewhat to your own free will. And it sounds like your parents <laughs> were highly, highly influential uh, on you as well. Well, I was a homeschooler uh, starting at the age of 10. I used to quote Mark Twain that you can't let school interfere with your education. And I, start, I started a bakery when I was 10 as part of my homeschooling project. So I sold natural baked goods door to door around the neighborhood and actually ended up on the front page of the Santa Cruz Sentinel newspaper. The, the headline was, boy, he isn't very rich, but he's got dough. Um, <laughs> and I was uh, selling baked goods, natural, wholesome stuff, uh, you know, and um, I learned about marketing and entrepreneurship and, you know, budgeting and all sorts of wonderful things starting at a very young age. And I think that built a kind of confidence in me that kind of stayed with me. And so eventually I moved on from the bakery business, but never lost my passion for following my passion. And um, when I was 16, I you know joined with a friend to found this nonprofit. And, um, you know, we thought really big. We, we actually wanted to see if we could save the world within 10 years. And uh, I'll admit at this point, I've gotten a little more sober. I think it's going to take at least 10 more years. But, <laughs> no, I've never stopped asking the big questions like, how can we make the biggest difference possible? Why is there so much pain and suffering on this planet? Why are so many of us sick when we value health? Why are so many nations at war when we value peace? Why are we living so unsustainably on this planet when we care about life? Why do we torture animals in factory farms when we are human beings who have conscience and feelings and caring? In so many ways, I feel that we make choices consistently that are out of step with our own best interests. And yeah. I'm interested in illuminating those gaps and helping people bridge them with their lives 
so that we start acting in accord with our values, our integrity, our conscience, and our own desires for what yeah. we really want. Yeah, that's a that's a very insightful thought and point. I've started to believe that the life of integrity is aligning your works and actions with your highest principles, um, regardless of external circumstances. And of course, we're going to be tested uh, right now, like perhaps we haven't been tested in multiple generations to be able to live um, with in alignment with our highest principles. You know, you said something that I saw on the internet that I think speaks to that point is that we we seem to make these trade-offs in our lives um, that don't serve us. Not only are they not in alignment with our highest principles, but in the end, they create a lot of misery. Yes. I think the, the, the quote, and I'll let you kind of take it from there because I'll probably butcher it, but you say something to the effect that we trade the pleasure of food, this kind of momentary pleasantness of biting into a potato chip um, or a cookie for this long-term extended discomfort, sickness, and, and misery. Um, and it is such a devil's bargain. <laughs> Why do we do that? Well, we were wired from long ago in our ancestry to... Um, we weren't, we weren't really wired to think 50 years downstream, you know, mm, we, yeah. and if you could get sweet fruit or high calorie food, then that would be more likely you would survive, you know, sweet, sweet, sweet things were sweet because they were healthy, because they were ripe, because they were ready. We didn't have processed added junk and sugar back in the time of our ancestors. So our taste buds evolved to like sweet things. Our taste buds evolved to like high calorie things because the more calorically dense a food was, then uh, the more nutrition we would get that would help us survive. And the, the trouble is that the processed food industry has hijacked our taste buds and our biology for profits. You know, a lot of us associate uh, junk foods with pleasure. And uh, no doubt about it, ice cream tastes pretty good. You know, <laughs> no doubt about it. So do t potato chips to a lot of us, you know. Uh, but last time I checked, cancer didn't feel so good. You know, carrying an extra 50 pounds didn't feel so good. Being lethargic and miserable, being caught in brain fog, having digestive pain, feeling miserable doesn't feel any good at all. And in fact, the average senior has lost 50% of their taste buds. So when you eat the standard American diet in the long run, you actually have less pleasure even in your mouth because mm. your your cardiovascular function is compromised because your re cellular regeneration is compromised. And so over time, your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Some people call it the pleasure trap. Um, I, I personally don't care for that term because I'm all about pleasure. I just want healthy pleasures that help me have more pleasure more aliveness, more joy in life. I'm not interested in taking away anybody's pleasure. I want to add to it. My question is, how do we really add to it so we can have the most pleasure possible in this existence of life? And I say that healthy pleasures that come from healthy food are the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you make that uh, I suppose our 
cultural evolution has outpaced our biological evolution in the sense that, you know, as you point out, when we were hunter-gatherers foraging about on the Serengeti and we come across a fig tree, we are wired to essentially devour and binge as many figs as we possibly could in that moment before some larger beast would come along and kick our ass or we would, um, you know, flee off, um, you know, across the plains. And in a way that that biological wiring, as you say, has been hijacked um, by the food industry. So I'd love for you to um, maybe take some time to talk about kind of how the American food industry functions. Sure, absolutely. And we have a food industry where most of our food is grown with pesticides, hormones, antibiotics, synthetic junk, um, artificial fertilizers. Our animal products are coming from factory farms where the animals are essentially tortured. They're living in abject misery. And we have a food industry that is hyper-processing our food, stripping it of its vitamins, its minerals, its fiber, adding additives, flavorings, preservatives, colorings, um, sugars to it, and then putting it in plastic, shipping it all over the world. And we wind up with the most nutritionally inferior food supply in the history of humanity. The average American right now is eating a diet that is profoundly deficient in a host of critical nutrients. Less than 5% of us get the recommended daily amount of fiber. Fiber is critical, not just to keeping you regular, but also to nourishing your microbiome. It's what the good bacteria depend on. So you wonder why so many people have leaky gut, have digestive problems, are not getting the proper nutrition from their foods. Well, a lot of it comes back to our guts and that comes back to not feeding the good guys in your gut with the fiber that they need. We have a nutritional um, wasteland when it comes to getting a lot of the other vitamins and minerals that we need today because we're eating so many of our calories that are coming from processed junk, bottled oils, white flowers, factory farmed animal products instead of real, wholesome, natural food. So we're eating a lot of calories, more calories than ever. The average American gets about 500 to 1,000 too many calories per day, but we are starving to death for some of the nutrients that we most need in order to thrive. So some people wonder why they're always hungry. Well, maybe there actually are some nutrients that are straight up missing. When you base your diet around whole, organic, real, natural foods, when you eat lots and lots of vegetables and wholesome plants, you can fill up your plate with all the kale and broccoli and veggies you want. No need to go on a diet ever, ever, ever. You will thrive if you eat lots and lots of vegetables. And unfortunately, it isn't just toxic for humans. It's also destroying our planet. We are depleting our topsoil at a terrifying rate. According to UN researchers, we have 60 years left of farmable soil on planet Earth. A lot of our topsoil at the end of the day is carbon that is going into our atmosphere. In fact, a great deal of the climate change impact is coming from agriculture, and it should be the other way around. We should be sequestering our carbon in the soil, pulling it out of the atmosphere with ever-growing numbers of people, ever more depleted resource ecosystem bases, and climate change. We're on a fast track towards mass starvation. I don't think it's a matter of if, but when unless we change our course and change it dramatically. 
But the good news is we can turn all of that around. We can create an agricultural system that is nourishing to our bodies, where the soils are rich and nourished, where we sequester carbon out of the atmosphere, where we conserve more water because healthy soil doesn't need as much water. Um, because it, and it, it, it holds the water better, which means it's less prone to floods. We can create a more ethical food system where we ta stop torturing animals in factory farms. We can eat less meat and that can save resources. It takes about 12 pounds of grain or soy to make one pound of feedlot beef in the United States today. It takes about two and a half thousand gallons of water to make one pound of beef in the United States today. When we eat lower on the food chain, we can save an enormous amount of water. We can save topsoil, we can save land. 85% of agricultural land on planet Earth is being used for animal agriculture right now. If just theoretically humanity went vegan tomorrow, we would save enough land to equal the amount of land area of all of the United States, China, India, the European Union, and Australia combined. That's how much land we would free up if we just went vegan. Now, I'm not saying everyone's going to go vegan tomorrow, but my point is we can save a lot of land when we eat lower on the food chain. And that can free up precious resources. It can make more space for forests. It can help change the world for the better in profound ways. In order to instantiate some of these changes that you articulately outline, um, who is ultimately kind of holding the ball? So I was in a conversation a few years back with um, leadership from a lot of the major food companies in America. And one, one chat I had with a vice, senior vice president of Nestle has really stayed with me. They're actually the largest food company on earth. And uh, she was telling me, she said, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when it comes to health, we haven't really made it a priority in our products. Our goal has been to make, um, to make it accessible and affordable for as many people as possible to have access to tasty food for their families, ideally as convenient as possible. And we have chosen to take it, put health on the back burner. And then she said, but the other thing is that we've come out sometimes with lower sodium, lower fat, less processed options, and they haven't sold well. Yeah. And it struck me that it doesn't do you or me any good if a major food company does the right thing and then goes out of business for it, right? What's that yeah. gonna do for our world? So we, we have to create the market to drive the change. You know, the, that, that, that inspires food companies to do the right thing. And that's not the whole picture, but it is an important part of the picture. Mm. You know, when I think of like how you describe sort of the, uh, the life of a cookie, for example, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is, you know, grown in Iowa, um, in some kind of industrial corn that gets harvested and processed into some form of corn syrup that then gets, you know, bought by some food manufacturer that then processes uh, a cookie product right. and packages it up and puts it in a bunch of plastic and puts it on a truck into a DC 
um, and then from a DC to a shopping, uh, to a grocery store. I mean, you know, the amount of waste, um, that, um, that is created along that life of a cookie just so you can eat it and give yourself a momentary burst of pleasure. Um, but as we discussed before, you know, feel the long-term after effects. I wonder if there isn't just the possibility of a new story um, where, you know, maybe we question some of our assumptions around globalism and return to a more kind of local decentralized form of living. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I wonder, you know, as you survey the kind of modern or the current landscape of the pandemic. Yeah. I wonder what you see in it. Well, it is interesting that we're all having to localize in a profound way right now. I mean, so many people are staying home and for good reason. Uh, It's really, uh, I think, also illustrating how dependent we are on long supply chains. You know, we see products that are shipped all over the world and we see suddenly when we notice stores out of stock of certain things, we realize, wow, we just took it for granted that those things would always be there. Yeah. When they're not, we realize, oh my gosh, we're so dependent on them for our survival. And so one maybe possible silver lining that could come of this would be more self-reliance, more local self-sufficiency, um, and frankly, more focus on health, because I think in the time of COVID-19, your health is more important than it's ever been before. And um, so, I I mean, I'm looking for silver linings, obviously, because the landscape is also bleak and it's a a painful time we're in. But I'm interested in how we can make something good of it, because a tragedy is a a terrible thing to waste. (laughs) Yeah, that's well put. If one of the blessings is that we recognize our mortality and take our lives a little less for granted, maybe that would be a a blessing too. Because none of us know how many days we have on this earth. None of us know how many days our loved ones have on this earth. So let's use our mortality as a, and the reminder of our mortality to bring more love, more consciousness, more integrity to clean up our relationships and our communications to, to more fully uh, author uh, the lives we want. Yes. That's beautiful. Ocean beautifully put. Um, yeah, I mean, as I hunker down with my family right now, um, you know, up in the Santa Monica mountains in Topanga, uh, you know, with the cleanest and clearest air that's been in LA for 30 or 40 years by, um, because nobody's driving, um, you know, I, I can't help but feel insanely fortunate and lucky. And I wonder if our current situation doesn't put the microscope on income inequality like never before. Right. And, um, and I, and I deeply worry about that, especially over, you know, the coming months. Um, and you can obviously see it, um, kind of in a less acute, but, but still incredibly serious um, uh, instantiation in food. And, you know, I've, I've told this story before, but like, you know, my kids play soccer and, um, you know, they practice down in, in South Central in a part of LA um, 
that's not particularly affluent. And I always forget to bring snack just because <laughs> my yeah. dad forgets. And so I drop them off and then I've got to run around and find an appropriate snack for the kids on the soccer team. And, you know, you know what I'm finding there. It's a yeah. food desert. Sure. And so it's all cookies and chips and, um, and Doritos and, you know, and, and Nutter Butters and, you know, you can go on and on candy bars and whatnot and fast food. Yes. And so just the access, um, is, is so highly limited. And, you know, I, I worry about that too with COVID-19, whether it's going to disproportionately impact, um, you know, people that are, uh, are less well off. So statistically in the United States, the poorer you are and the browner you are, the more likely you are to eat a diet that is getting the majority of its calories from processed junk and factory farmed meat and sugar. And the less likely you are to get enough fruits and vegetables and fiber. Statistically, those same people are the most likely to suffer and die from chronic illness. So rates of obesity, heart disease, cancer, type two diabetes, even Alzheimer's are significantly higher in communities of color and in communities of lower income in the United States. There is a direct correlation, therefore, along race and class lines with some of the, what I consider to be the greatest injustice of our times, because for the kids growing up in communities with food deserts, for the kids growing up, not having access to the basic nutrition they need to thrive, this impacts their mental function. It impacts how they do in school. It impacts their sense of security in life. We have tens of millions of kids growing up without food security. They literally, not just living paycheck to paycheck, they're living meal to meal. We have 30 million kids that are dependent on the school meal program for their basic caloric nutrition. And so to me, this does highlight wealth inequality, as does the fact that Half of all Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So literally, in the time of COVID-19, absent sudden support, they literally have no options for survival, like paying rent, like buying food becomes untenable within a few weeks of lost work. That's how on the edge we are for a large portion of our population. And then we've got other folks for whom maybe they're worried about their stock portfolio or you know, retirement which is real, but it's a different place to live from. And when, when your house is on fire is not the time you tend to think about putting in a water tank or you know, clearing the trees so that you're not susceptible to forest fire. You're in survival mode. And a lot of people right now are in survival mode. And when you're in survival mode, when your brain is in survival mode, you're gonna be more drawn to the so-called comfort foods, to the foods that provide a quick burst of calories that hits your bloodstream stream fast. So it becomes harder in that space to make the wise choices. And we know that toxic food is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a, it's a negative feedback loop where it gets harder and harder to break free. So cycles of food addiction and cycles of economic stress tend to go together. 
But the good news is we can do something about that. We can create positive feedback loops that turn that around. Some of the top things we could do to turn this around include serving healthier lunches in schools. Our kids should be fed healthy food. Schools are preparing them for the future. Shouldn't they be also helping not give them a lifelong foundation of addiction to junk food and uh, clogged arteries? Oh, we could plant more school gardens and more community gardens. In fact, we could even have government support for gardens of all shapes and sizes and kinds. If the lawns of America were converted to gardens, we could grow more than six times the amount of fruits and vegetables currently consumed in this country. And so we could start turning lawns over, we could start uh, growing more food for humans instead of grass to look at. And um, other things we could do would include shifting government subsidies. Right now in the United States, we provide tens of billions of dollars every year in subsidies for commodities crops. Essentially, we're subsidizing high fructose corn syrup, we're subsidizing white bread, we're subsidizing Twinkies. With, there are 14 subsidized ingredients in Twinkies. We're subsidizing factory farmed meat. And we are not subsidizing fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, or legumes, which are the foods that science tells us we should be eating more of. Yeah. We could double the value of uh, the SNAP program, so-called food stamps, mm -hmm. for fruits and vegetables. This would instantly help tens of millions of people to afford more fruits and vegetables and give them an economic, an economic incentive to eat them. Right now, 500,000 Americans do have double SNAP value for fruits and vegetables through a program called Wholesome Wave. It's a test project. And what we're seeing is that when people get double value for fruits and vegetables, they buy more fruits and vegetables, they eat more fruits and vegetables, they're healthier because of it, and their communities stock more fruits and vegetables. Talk about food deserts. Well, guess what? Joe liquor store owner, Joe 7-Eleven owner, is not gonna have any incentive to stock a bunch of broccoli and cabbage and mushrooms if it's just gonna go rotten in the fridge. <laughs> so we need to create the incentive and the buying power to drive that healthy food into those communities where it's needed. And part of how we do that is with policy shifts that incentivize doing the right thing. Mm. We could also make sure that doctors learn about nutrition in medical school. Right now, the average physician gets less than 19 hours of nutritional education in all their years of medical training, and most of that focuses only on specific nutrients and what happens when you don't have enough of them. It doesn't look at actually how to help patients eat well. I say that a doctor not learning about food is kind of like a firefighter not learning about water. But unfortunately, that's the norm today. We could change it. We want to change it. We could make sure that hospitals can only serve healthy food. Um, we, we could do so much if we wanted to. We could, we could incentivize economically farmers creating metrics for them to track carbon sequestration mm -hmm. so that when they take carbon out of the atmosphere, they get a bonus. And they then have an incentive to measure their carbon and their soil and to deepen their topsoil and to sequester that carbon. There are practices that could do it. If we create the economic incentive, we can help fight climate change. And so when we start to put some of these practices into action, and perhaps we could also ban some of the worst practices of factory farms. We could ban the routine use of antibiotics in our factory farms. When we, when we make these changes, we can start to save water and sequester carbon and, and boost the health of humanity. We can start to take a slash out of our medical spending, which is now 19% of gross domestic product in America. 
We can create a healthier population so that even in pandemics come along, we have stronger immune systems and we're better able to cope and respond effectively. We can create a more robust economy where less of us are living chronically sick. Our hospitals can actually have less strain on them because there are less sick people. And these are steps we can take that could make a profound difference for all of us. We know how. Now we just got to do it. Mm. That is inspiring. Uh, I love it. And it's, uh, and it's so clear um, that, these, that the solutions are at hand. In a lot of these areas, as we've discussed, in a lot of these food deserts, e even if SNAP has this kind of two-for-one with fruits and vegetables, sometimes you can't even find them. Yep. So, it, But if you can redeem food stamps online, then there can be a local distribution center that can get you organic, healthy, fresh food and vegetables uh, to your house. But as you say, most of the time where people can essentially redeem um, their SNAP benefits um, you know, it's the local bodega or liquor store, but you know that there are these solutions, and uh, right. and uh, you're such an incredibly articulate and powerful messenger for these solutions. Um, thank you for that. Well, thank you. Uh, there is a lot we can do, and that's what I love about food. I mean, there are so many problems in the world that can feel unconfrontable and overwhelming to us. What can one person do? Sometimes we feel not so much like a drop in the bucket, but a drop in the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. but, but when it comes to food, uh, you and I really do have immense power. Obviously, we can't change the entire food system all by ourselves, but we can be on the right side of history. Yes. We can be an expression of our conscience and our integrity and our values. And in that process, we can uh, at least true ourselves with who we are. Yeah. I wonder just in, in closing, um, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your own diet, um, because one thing that I will, that I've noticed about you now getting to know you um, today on this call, but in all of your video content, which is, is prolific online, is that you have a tremendous amount of vitality. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you speak with a lot of energy, um, and that must reflect uh, kind of an energetic body and an energetic state of being. So I wonder, what do you put in there <laughs> to get so much <laughs> vitality and, and vigor and vim out into the world? Oh, goodness. Well, of course, food plays a big part. Uh, you know, I, I eat a predominantly whole foods, plant-centered diet. I eat lots and lots of vegetables. Um, I try to make every calorie count. I mean, I, I indulge a little bit in the occasional, you know, bit of something extra, little chips or something. Potato chips are kind of my weak spot. But I'm talking about like once every couple weeks. I'm not talking about every day. Um, I eat uh, often, I'll be honest with you, my breakfast is leftovers <laughs> from the <laughs> night before. I, I just sometimes dinner was good. So why the heck should we have to have something different for breakfast? And so I'll eat a lot. I eat in our household a lot of lentils and legumes and vegetables and spices. Spices are kind of what makes food come to life and mm -hmm. gives it a, a variety. And so learning how to use spices effectively is good for your, your palate, but it's also really good for your health because yes. spices are so nutritious. They're so full of antioxidants and amazing nutrients. Um, and then I eat a lot of fruit, actually. Um, according to some research, we are more deficient in fruit than vegetables. Now, I'm not talking about like 
apple juice or orange juice. I'm talking about real fruit, like actual fruit that you chew. chew. Berries. I eat a lot of frozen berries. Mm-hmm. Um, just love to snack on them or add them to things, uh, you know, smoothies sometimes. Um, I um, eat lots of hummus with vegetables, using hummus as kind of a dip. Sometimes we sprout our own garbanzo beans and make hummus that way. Sometimes we actually buy it. Um, we have a community-supported agriculture program, so we get a weekly huge delivery of vegetables from from that. And our kind of family game is we have to eat them all before the next one comes. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a little extra soup making going on late yeah. in the week. Sometimes <laughs> sure. we cheat and freeze some soups, but that's that's paying it forward, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, I eat whole grains. I love quinoa. I'm concerned about the arsenic in rice, so I eat some rice for sure. But I lean more into quinoa, millet, buckwheat. Um, for grains, potatoes, sweet potatoes, yeah. love those sweet potatoes. Um, sometimes I'll have sweet potatoes with, um, you know, some, some flax oil and, uh, umeboshi vinegar, maybe some turmeric or chili on top or, or cumin. Interesting to put spices on there. Uh, sometimes I'll, um, you know, we make our own, you know, hummuses or things to put on there as well. Um, you know, lots of options, but bottom line is when you make friends with a healthy kitchen, it gets easier and easier to do the right thing. And the key is healthy habits. So at this point, for me, my healthy habits are deeply ingrained enough that it's not effort. It's not labor. It's the path of least resistance. I'm grateful for that because I grew up this way. Um, but if you didn't grow up this way, if you don't have those healthy habits, don't despair. Um, you can do it. You can. And, and the good news is your taste buds change. Literally, you secrete, secrete different saliva as you get used to vegetables, and they start to taste sweeter. They start to taste better. So stick with it and build those healthy habits, and it'll get easier and easier. Awesome. Well, I think on that hopeful note, um, we'll conclude for today. Thank you so much for all of the information and just really for uh, the energy that you're bringing to this food revolution, which is so central to our human story and touches really every single piece of our existence. Um, We're so grateful for you to obviously be on the show, but just to have you as a functioning member of a (laughs) global (laughs) society, um, you know, spreading, uh, spreading this message. So, um, thanks, Ocean Robbins. Thank you, Jeff. If anyone wants to follow up with me, check out my book, 31 Day Food Revolution, Heal Your Body, Feel Great, and Transform Your World. You can also join in, in the Food Revolution Summit at foodrevolutionsummit.org. My dad and colleague, John Robbins, and I interview 24 of the top food experts on the planet. We share those interviews completely for free. Again, go to foodrevolutionsummit.org to sign up and join in. Uh, in the time of COVID-19 and in all time, your health needs to be a priority and we're here to help you make the healthiest possible choices you can. Thank you for listening to today's show. To learn more about Ocean and to join the ninth annual Food Revolution Summit, go to foodrevolution.org. If you have any comments or questions on today's show, shoot me an email at jeffk at onecommune.com. 
I really appreciate hearing directly from you and I will respond. That's all from the commune for this week. I'm Jeff Krasno and I'm here for you.